grace and mercy to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The text is the Holy Gospel from Matthew. Please be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, there you have it, another parable. And Jesus wants you to pay attention very carefully for his repenting you, his faithing you, and his leading and teaching you. That's precisely what he means when he says at the end of the parable, he who has ears, let him hear. The parable of the wheat and the weeds has two points, two points. First, it will tell you what will happen on the last day. On judgment day, Jesus will be vindicated, vindicated. In other words, if you've ever doubted Jesus or the way that he works, you will see on the last day that he was right. And you will praise him and you will thank him. The wheat seed that sows, that he sows, are the believers. And they ultimately bear fruit, eternal life and resurrection of the body. Uh, wheat describes the Lord's hangers-on, his faithers. The weed seed sown by the devil, that's the weeds, is destroyed at the end of time. Yes, in the end, the weeds will have no lasting effect on the wheat harvest. Brothers and sisters, the weeds, the unbelievers, do not have any permanent damage to the Lord's wheat harvest of believers. Now the weeds, or the unbelievers, they do not destroy the wheat, the believers. In the end, the Lord prevails because he's already won decisively and definitively in his Good Friday death on the cross. Jesus is the Lord of the harvest field. He is the Savior of the world, in other words. He is the Redeemer of all. So, nothing, not even the devil, his lies, his murderous threats, or the devil's own hangers-on can deny or destroy the Lord's harvest of the wheat. You got that? So, what will happen on the last day is the first part of the parable's meaning. The wheat, the believers gathered into the barn, the weeds burned with fire. That is to, me, that is to say, eternal fire in hell. The second part of the parable deals with the now, the present day, here and now. And so at this very moment, at this very day, both wheat and weeds, good and evil, faith and unbelief, Jesus and the devil are all in the field. They're all mixed up together, intermingled if you will. Jesus sows the good seed of his faith-creating gospel word, but Satan is right there too, sowing doubt, despair, and unbelief. Where Jesus does his Good Friday delivery work, the devil stirs up mischief. If you're picking up what Jesus is throwing down in the parable, just where Jesus is closest to you in his word and sacrament, in the church, in the divine service, that is precisely where the devil mounts his greatest threat. It goes like this, the threat. Did Jesus really say that? Did Jesus tell you that he forgives you? Did Jesus tell you that he died for you to atone for all your sin? Really? And then Satan says, you can't trust Jesus. He's holding out on you. And Satan says, good grief, get a grip. Jesus really doesn't forgive sinners like you. You'd better see to it yourself. Are your ears hearing? Are you listening? 
The kingdom of God's promise of salvation for Jesus' sake is extended to you in his word and sacraments. And Satan is right there whispering his lies. Satan works mischief while Jesus gives his gifts. Satan entices you to doubt Jesus and his word and to trust yourself as if you're your own savior with your own salvific words. Satan is our Lord's enemy. Satan will do anything to oppose Jesus and his work and giving for you. And therefore, Satan sows his weeds densely, thickly, profusely, copiously. So many weeds that the servants in the parable question the owner of the field. Oh, you did plant good seed, right? They say that because they're not sure that the owner of the field is playing with a full deck. They think that he's incompetent and careless and reckless. I mean, look at the field. It's full of weeds. Good grief. Now I want you to stop focusing on that. Don't focus on the, don't focus on the weeds. That is a mistake. You need to pay attention to the wheat. Because if you lose sight of the wheat, <coughs> you will only pay attention to the weeds. And you'll begin to doubt the sower of the good seed. If you focus your attention on what is wrong with the field, then you'll lose sight of the one thing that is right with the field. And what's that? I'm glad you asked. What is right and good and salutary is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The only thing right in this world is Jesus. He's the Good Friday and Easter Sunday sower of the good news of salvation. So if your focus is only on the bad things that happen in the world or in your life, you will conclude that there is something wrong with, with God. Like, now God's just simply not as merciful as he claims to be. Otherwise, he'd do something about things. Or God's not as all-powerful as he claims to be. Because when I look around, all I see is evil in the world. But I'm here to tell you that God has indeed done something. The ultimate gift. He has given his son into death for you, for your salvation. Today's parable that Jesus tells gives us all perspective or an alternative view regarding all the wrong that goes on. It's this. An enemy did it. Again, Jesus has his enemies. And so do you as his died for believers. When you see or when you experience sin, disease, or death, don't blame God and don't blame God's word. An enemy did this, Jesus says, Satan himself. So neither the sower nor the seed is responsible for the weeds. It's the devil who's behind the weeds. So until Judgment Day, as we live in this present life, what is to be done about the weeds? Well... If you're an activist, if you're a doer, if you're a person that refuses to live by faith, but instead by sight, you will insist on doing something immediately. And what's that? Yank the weeds now and let's cut the losses. Crank up the weed eaters and start weed whacking those noxious weeds. Farmer, Sower, kingdom of God planter Jesus, 
he refuses to do that at this moment. He has another plan of action. And what is his plan of action in this life, before Judgment Day? In action. Do nothing, he says. Not a, not a thing. He says, let both grow together until the harvest comes. Because if it were left, left up to us to do the harvest, what would we do by yanking up the weeds? We would do great damage to what? The wheat. We'd pull up wheat along with the weeds. Or we'd pull wheat, mistaking the wheat to be weeds. So until Judgment Day, both the wheat and the weeds get the same treatment. They get the same water, the same sunshine, the same compost, the same cultivating. There's no playing favorites. Just like the scripture says in Matthew 5, God causes his rain to fall on the good and the wicked alike. That's absolutely incredible, isn't it? Not a single weed is to be pulled out by the roots or cut down prematurely. So, brothers and sisters, put your roundup away. <laughs> Shut your weed whackers off. Put all of that out of your minds. Don't even go there. Because on the last day, the angels, at the Lord's command, they will then finally take care of the weeds at harvest time. But for now, the wheat and the weeds, the good, the evil, the faithers, and the unfaithers will live together in the same field. While the servants are preoccupied with the weeds, Jesus is preoccupied with what? The wheat. Did you notice that his disciples asked, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field? What were they concerned about? Yeah, weeds. But I'm here to tell you that the parable is really about the wheat. <laughs> the passion of the sower for his wheat is God's passion in Jesus to save you. So again, why does God tolerate all the evil in the world? All the mischief of his enemy, the devil? Why doesn't God just erase all of it right now? Well, the simple but the shocking answer is this. It is so that you will come to fruitful faith in Jesus and be raised from the dead by clinging to Jesus for your salvation. Now I know this calls for patience and it calls for endurance. It calls for our daily dying to our sin and dying to the devil's lies. It calls for the daily renewal of our faith in Jesus who took all of our sin in his body on the cross and answered for all of it. Jesus has forgiven you of everything. All your doubt of his word and all the doubt of his promises, he forgives you. He forgives all your anger at him. He forgives all your mistrust. Just name the sin. Jesus forgives it. He's covered it with his divine Good Friday blood. That's how concerned he is for you his wheat. So for now, thanks be to God, Jesus then is carefully cultivating you to trust only in him. He's going to see to that, that you, his grains of wheat, are not lost. So in the end, on the last day, it's the Lord's harvest. No matter what the devil sows in this life, it all winds up supporting the Lord's harvest in the resurrection of the body. On judgment day, the entire field will be uprooted, weeds and wheat Faith and unbelief, good and evil. And you, the wheat, 
you will be gathered into the barn of heaven. The weeds will be burned. Jesus who directs his harvesting angels is the same Jesus who died on the cross for you. He's baptized you. He's, gave you, he's given you his saving name. He absolves you. He gives you his body and blood. Brothers and sisters, to clinch it, listen carefully. You are a precious planting and harvest to Jesus. So precious, so precious, that he, during this time in your life, he's willing to put up with a few weeds. Trust him to take care of you. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In the name of Jesus, amen. Two words, faith and love. This is what God the Father wants to happen in your life. Faith in his son, Jesus Christ, who died for you. And then, fathers, as you exercise headship in a family, you take care of and you love. Okay. Any questions about that? Okay, look at the sheet then. Underneath the passage we just read. So very interesting in Ephesians 3 here. The word for father in the Greek is, and you've heard this term, like pater familias. What's the movie? I'm trying to think of the movie uh, with uh, George Clooney and they break out of jail. Oh, brother, where art thou? He's constantly saying pater familias. <laughs> Remember that? Rewatch it on Netflix or whatever. But the Greek word for father is pater. The word translated as family then flows from that. It's patria. So pater, father, patria, family. They're related to each other in words. So the term uh, patria means a set of individual families in which all have a common father. So the English translation of pater and patria has a hard time reproducing the play of these two Greek words. St. Paul's point in Ephesians 3 with these two words is this. Don't miss this. From God the Father, listen carefully, from God the Father, all lineages of fathers are named. So what does God the Father do according to Ephesians 3? Or what, ha what does God the Father want for you? The text says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you would know the love of Christ and be filled with the fullness of God's love. Now a quick side note if you will, but it's piggybacking on this F-A-I-T-H word. Listen very carefully. This is a huge problem in the church. This is a crisis. That when we hear the word faith, we think only in this way. That it's knowledge. That I get all the facts right. And that's true. We need to get the facts right. Was Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit? Yes. Was he born of the Virgin Mary? Yes. Did he suffer under punishment? Yes. Was he crucified? Yeah. Was he? Yeah. Got to get those facts straight. But if that's all faith is, you're not saved. And a lot of Christians think that if they just have all the facts right, they can do anything they want. No. That's not faith that saves. What is faith that saves? It's getting all the facts right, but knowing what? What have I taught you? Where am I going? It's what Kuhlman says in sermons all the time. For you. So, did Jesus die on the cross? Yeah, the devil even knows that. He's got the knowledge. He, he knows all the facts. Unbelievers, they know that Jesus died on the cross. 
And many unbelievers know that Jesus rose from the dead like the devil. But the gospel is this, that Jesus died and rose for you. That's why when you come to communion, I do not say just the fact. I do not, I, I, there, you may experience this when you come to communion somewhere else. The body of Christ or the blood of Christ. Is it the body and blood of Christ? Yeah, it is. But that's just stating the facts. It's not yet the gospel. The gospel is the body of Christ for you. That's why I've instructed the elders that when they distribute the Lord's blood, they say the blood of Christ for you. You lose the for you, you lose the what? The gospel. By golly, folks, the angels knew better. You know, when the angel came and preached when Jesus was born, he did the for you gospel preaching. He didn't just say, now in the, in the town of David, Jesus is born. What did he say? In the town of David, a Savior has been born unto or for you. When Peter in Acts chapter 2 references people for baptism, because they asked, what should we do? He says, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. And this promise, namely forgiveness, gift of the Holy Spirit, is for you and for your children and for all. I'm going to repeat this. This is absolutely important. So God the Father, is he God the Father? Yes, but that's not the gospel. God the Father is God for you and for your salvation. Bingo, right here. So how do you evaluate sermons whether the gospel's been preached? I'll tell you how. The preacher had better say that this death on the cross was for you and for your salvation. Let me illustrate this one more way to clinch the point. So you have a headache. And then you'll remember all day. Kuhlman couldn't get over it. Now imagine, let's say Nolan, let's, let's pretend that you're on the speech team and you're gonna have, you're gonna go to your speech meet and you're gonna debate. That's your topic, you're gonna debate. And so Nolan, at the beginning of his speech on debate, he goes up to the podium and he says, my name is Nolan Stroy. I have 10 minutes in which to give my speech. Here is my topic. I can't call my opponents by names, etc., etc." Now what has Nolan just done? He has recited the rules of the, but he hasn't debated. Make sense? Now let me push this to the church. I can get up in the pulpit every Sunday and I can say Jesus died on the cross. I can say that Jesus rose from the dead. Are those things true? Yep. And I can even say this, that we are the justification Namely, salvation is that we are justified by faith in Jesus through, through grace alone. Is that true? Yes. But have I preached the gospel? I have not. What have I just done? I have simply cited the grammar of the scriptures. That's all. I haven't preached yet. The true preaching is when Jesus hooks the for you to the Jesus death. The for you to his resurrection. Okay. So this is why to finally clinch this point. So it, it, you'll have to have a lot of mercy on a lot of clergy these days who haven't learned this very well, or some of them just flat out reject it. They refuse to say it. You may have to take them out for lunch, take them by the ear, give them a really hot cup of espresso and chocolate pie, and say, Reverend, when I come to communion, I want you to tell me that that body and blood is for me. I know it's the body of Christ. I know that. But I want you to tell it it's for me. And this isn't Kuhlman's private itch, by the way, brothers and sisters. 
I want you to not misunderstand. This is not Kuhlman's little <laughs> private itch. Once again, as I was preparing during Advent for Christmas and all the Advent services last year, I reread some sermons by Dr. Luther on the Christmas texts, like Luke 2, etc. And he makes this point over and over and over again. So it's not my private little itch. You may think it is, but it isn't. Now, you ready to take me out to the woodshed? You probably are. All right, so let's go back to the sheet. Bottom, there below the picture. So then learn then what the Father's love is. He grants then, notice, he grants according to his riches. So if you want to know what it means to live under the fatherhood of God, you learn to receive. And this is the next point I wanted to make, with faith. Faith can be knowledge, and you've got to get the knowledge right, and you've got to get the facts right. And so when, when Christians speak about faith, primarily that it's for you, and what does that mean then? It means that when Jesus says, do this as often as you, you're going to do it. Namely, faith will then be first and foremost, be receptive. That is to say, it will be passive. And that's why in the New Testament, when you read Paul's epistles, you will, you will hear Paul talk about this, this devotion or godly life or this pious way of living, depending on the translation. I'm going to repeat. Check me out on this. You take notes tonight, you insomniacs. And read Paul's epistles like 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus and the other epistles. And he will use this terms about godly living or holy living. And that Greek word that is translated in many ways in English can be simply summarized this way. That the holy life, the godly life, is the life of faith which is first and foremost given to. Given to by the Lord. And so that's God the Father. He, he gives gifts from his magnificent treasure. And then this teaches us to not be stingy. So God's love for us flows into our life through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then that love of God in Christ to us then flows out of us into the world and to others. So faith is passive and it receives. And then faith is passive and, uh, pardon me, active and living. And that love given to us through Jesus then flows out of us into the world. And that's why Christianity grows in the world where this stuff's taught and acted. So he strengthens with his power. He reaches into our inner beings, our hearts, our bodies. Brothers and sisters, one of the main things in the Bible, if you haven't noticed, is that God actually dwells within you. Now, we're not Gnostics in this sense. Gnostics teach like Oprah Winfrey. Is she still alive? Yes. Good Oprah, who has, you know, the O magazine and their show, you know, She's a Gnostic. She believes that you have a spark of divinity within yourself, which means that you are divine. And you need, to, you need to exercise your divinity. Now, when the Bible teaches that God, the Holy Trinity, dwells in us, that doesn't mean we're divinities. We're still creatures. What it means is that God loves us so much that he redeems our bodies, he redeems our souls, he redeems our minds, our emotions, etc. And then he actually dwells in us. For what purpose? Just to twiddle his thumbs? No. Why does the Holy Trinity dwell in us? So that God can extend his love to others. Through us. Through our hands. Through our mouth. Etc. And with regard to fatherhood. I just mentioned it earlier. Okay. So fatherhood for God then is not a checklist. It's not a reward or punishment. But loving service. 
He brings ungodly sinners like you and me into his family in order to generously show and give his love for us as in his only begotten son, Jesus, who suffers, dies, and rises bodily from the dead on the third day. So what kind of God do we have as God the Father? We have a, we have a God who lives outside of himself. Let me put it to you this way. If you've been Greeked, that is to say, if you've been Platoed, Plato, or if you've been Socrates, Socrates, or if you've been Aristotle, Aristotle, Greek philosophers, if you've been Greek, you think that God sits way up there that you can't get to, and all he does, 24-7, 365, is all that God does is look at himself, talk to himself, and he's only concerned with himself. He never looks down on us. He's not concerned with this mess down here on this earth at all. It's just the opposite. What does it mean for God to be God and God the Father? It means that God lives outside of himself. God looks and sees what's going on, how we need a Savior to save us. Huge. So the direction that is from God to us with Christianity, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, right? Let's go to Luke 15. Here we see the fatherhood of God the Father extended in a parable that Jesus tells, which you all know, but we're going to take the time to read it. Luke 15. This might help you as an earthly father when maybe your kids go off the rails. <laughs> and when they come back, what do you do? You know exactly where I'm going. Now, before we read this Luke 15 parable, you know, the parable of which I would like to call the waiting father, the waiting father, the giving father. We've, we've named it what? The prodigal son. Perhaps we've misnamed it. Y'all there? Now keep in mind that Jesus tells two other parables before he tells this one. The parable of the lost sheep in which the, she the shepherd risks his entire business. I mean, who in the world goes after one lost sheep and leaves the 99 behind? <coughs> leaves the 99 exposed to the wolves. And I'm a Glenrock sheep herder. That's where I grew up. Sheep herders. A shepherd who leaves all of his flock to get one is an idiot because the wolves are going to get the rest. You'll lose, you'll lose money. So you just write it off. Similarly, the lost coin. You just write it off or claim it on your taxes. Okay? And now lost son, if you will. So Jesus continued, verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of this, the estate. Now that doesn't happen until what? When, when does a father give his inheritance out? While the kids are still alive? No, when, when does that take place? After the old man dies, and then his will is read by the lawyer. You've got to go to the lawyer's office and have the will read, right? But now, this young man, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to wait. He does not want to wait until his father dies. He wants his share of the inheritance now. And the father does what? He essentially says, you want me dead? Well, I'll, I'll pretend I'm dead. And so what does he do? He divided his property. And notice the language, not between just the one boy, but between both of them. Both of the boys get the inheritance before the old man dies. You want to talk about generosity? Now, most of you are saying, how reckless that is. But see, this is God the Father. He will give and give and give, and he gives recklessly, even when it just is just scandalous, he gives. 
And of course, this is the most scandalous thing that he gives his son into death so that you receive a, an eternal inheritance. Not long after that, verse 13, the younger son gets everything that he's got, but gets it together, goes to a distant country, squanders all of his wealth in wild living. It's kind of like, you know, going to the casinos, going to the bar, you know, that kind of thing. Now, I'm not, I'm, don't misunderstand me. You want to go to the casino? Fine. You want to go to the bar? Fine. But this is wild living stuff. This is profligate. You ever heard of that word? Profligate. It's just wasteful, wasteful spending of his wealth. By the way, why does God give us money and possessions? This is why some Christians are against gambling. And they have a good argument. Why does God give us stuff? To waste? To take care of each other. Yeah. So let's just, for the sake of arguing it here, clinch it. So Kluben gets a paycheck this week, or at the end of the month, gets a paycheck, and then goes to Council Bluffs, wastes all of it. And then Robin says, didn't you get paid? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then I get the third degree. She's not in here, is she? So I can say that. <laughs> so after he spent everything there, there was a severe famine in that whole country. He began to be in need. Verse 15. So he goes and he hires. He's desperate. This is a Jew. A Jew. And he hires him out to a, a Gentile of that country and sends him to feed pigs. And for a Jew, of course, pigs are unclean and you're not to associate with them, let alone eat them. So he longs to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. How odd that is. The father gave him everything, and now he's got nothing, and no one will give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men, father's hired men, have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. So now he's going to make a plan. He's going he's to set things right with the old man. Now, this is very important. He makes a plan in which he will be the one who will reconcile this relationship to his father. That's critical. So again, let's read. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. What does that mean? I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against God. That's what he means there. Is that true? Yep. And against you, Father. Is that true? Yep. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Is that true? Yep. Now here's the kicker of his plan. Make me. That's a command. That's an imperative in the Greek. Command. Imperative. So he's calling the shots. He's going to reconcile the relationship. How? Treat me or make me like one of your hired men. So I'm not worthy to be a son anymore. I'm going to come back home, and I won't be a son. I'll be like one of your hired men. Now again, to emphasize, who's calling the shots here? The old man or the son? The son. Let's keep going. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, who sees him? Daddy does. And he's filled with compassion for him. Now in the Greek, that filled with compassion means his guts are just spilling out all over the place. And that is a Greek verb that is always referenced to God. This is mercy. His guts are just spilling out. So he has compassion on him. And isn't it interesting, the father does what next after compassion? What's he do? He runs 
to his now in, in America and in English we have no clue what this means we really think that's no big deal but in the ancient world this is huge so the father who has compassion on a son who sinned so badly against his father he runs out to his son why is this important let me illustrate the next time you see the United Nations meet in New York City and all the countries of the world gathered at the United Nations you watch the gentlemen from the Middle East who wear the long robes and some of them wear hats and turbans. Watch how they walk. These noblemen, watch how they walk. They don't walk like coolmen. They walk with back straight and with dignity and slowly and calmly. Men in the Middle East never run, never. I know you like to run. But they never do. Sorry. <laughs> I don't run because I just, you know, I got, I'd get shin splints in a heartbeat, so I'd have to quit. But here's my point. This, in the ancient world, if a noble, nobleman runs, he brings shame to himself and his entire family. Noblemen don't do that, and this one does. He is willing to be, everybody will look at this father running out to this son saying, oh my word, what a fool he is. Shame on him. But he doesn't. See the compassion? You see the point? Okay. And he throws his arms around him and he kisses him. So what's the father just done with his boy? It's the F word. What is it? He's forgiven him. The actions show the father's forgiveness. Got it? This, now, what's the parallel here? Think of Romans. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet ungodly, Christ died for us. There's nobody who's a sinner ungodly more than this boy. And God the Father does these things. Compassion runs out to him, throws his arms around him, and gets out by kisses on the cheeks, etc., maybe even on the lips. Because in the, in the Middle East, in the ancient world, that's no big deal. Okay? That's reconciliation with the kisses. That's the point. Oh, and by the way, so if, if you've got a Bible concordance or if you're interested, I'm going to really get in trouble here. But in Paul's epistles in the New Testament, towards the end of some of his epistles, remember his epistles were read as sermons. And so after the sermon was over, they'd, they'd, be, they'd get ready for what in the church? The Lord's Supper. And Paul says, greet one another with a holy what? Some of you know it. Say it loudly, those of you who know. Yes. Kiss. Now some of you are saying, what? That's in the Bible. Yes, that's right. That's in the Bible. So why would they do that in the early church? I'm not saying that we have to do that here. Don't misunderstand me. But in the early church, before communion, the Christians would give, greet one another with a holy kiss. Why? To say that they are reconciled to one another through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that they would therefore bring no disunity anger, hatred, or whatever to the Lord's Supper against a fellow believer. Does that make sense? That's very important. All right, now. The son then enacts his plan. And notice what gets dropped off. Verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. Yep, that's true. And against you. Yep, that's true. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's true. But notice what gets dropped off. Make me like one of your hired men. That gets dropped off. Why? Because he now knows that the father has forgiven him and that the father is going to treat him not as a hired man, but as a son. Let's finish it. 
The father said to his servants, verse 22, quick, bring the best robe. That's how you treat a son. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. That's not how you treat servants. That's how you treat a son. Sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. You don't do that for servants. You do that for members of the family. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. This illustrates God the Father. What it means to be Father. Waiting, waiting, waiting. And when the sinner comes back, what do you do? You forgive. Thanks be to God. I'm glad, I'm glad that my father treats me like that. And this is why Paul says in Ephesians 6, which we'll look at in detail another day. In Ephesians 6 says that fathers are not to, you know this? They are not to exasperate their children. That's one of the English terms. They are not to exasperate their children. One of the examples that you can exasperate your children is when a child sins against you and they come to you as dad and say, will you forgive me? And dad says, no. No way. You're going to pay for that. You know what I mean when I say that? And then, well, are they ever going to come back to you for anything? I, they will not. They simply will not. They'll just give you two middle fingers and they're gone. Never see them again. Okay. That's part of that. Now, do you have any questions so far the point I'm trying to make here? God the Father, how he exercises his fatherhood here in this parable. Any questions about that? It's delicious. Yes, please. Yeah, brilliant point. Just in case you didn't hear it, Dorothy's point is this. When the son made his plan, he was going to call the shots when it came to the reconciliation. But when he finally gets home, who calls the shots of the reconciliation? Not the boy. God the Father does. Thank you. Is that your point? Yeah. yeah, that's the brilliant point. Now, you can continue to read the rest of it. And the older son, who was given his share of the inheritance, he doesn't like it when his father receives this boy back. And what we learn is, who's really the lost son? It's the one who stayed home. Because he doesn't trust his father. The father, I, I've given you everything, the father says. Come in, have a Cuban. Have some of the best port wine I've got. You know, from Lebanon or Greece. But he won't go in. All right, Galatians 4. Let's go to the Galatians 4, please. Again, how does God exercise his fathership? This is absolutely huge. And again, totally delicious. Salvationally, that is. Galatians 4, 4 to 5. <clears throat> so, you know, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then Galatians. How do you remember Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians? How do you remember that? Go eat popcorn. Go eat popcorn. That's right. There we go. General Electric Power Company. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I got to remember that. General Electric Power Company. Perfect. Now I got two. All right, you got Galatians? Check it out. Again, the love of our Father. God the Father, who actually is Father. What does he do for us? Check it out. But when the time had fully come. I want to say something about this. When the time had fully come. That is to say, all of Earth's history, before this happened, before this took place, all the Earth's history was working towards this. Christ's death on the cross. So again, side note, but it's worth repeating. History, if some of you who love history, and if you go to college and you're going to be a history major, 
History is not just serendipitous, namely it's not accidental. God, before he sent his son, worked all history for that exact moment. And so, when the time had fully come, everything that God had been working for prior, through Adam, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, what happened? God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, namely the Ten Commandments and all its accusations, to do what? To redeem those under the law. That we might, and this is a kicker here, check this out, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Now we live, we live in a woke culture. And so in this woke culture, when, we, when the woke culture hears sons, they go ape, you know what, fill in the blank. And again, they'll say, misogyny, misogyny, women haters. That's what misogyny means. Hatred of women. Misogyny. And so when they translate their Bible, they'll say men and women. And they miss the point. Why does Paul say that Jesus has redeemed us so that we receive the full rights of sons? Here's the point. In the ancient world and still in some parts of the world to this day, who gets the inheritance? The youngest son? Who does? The oldest son. The point Paul's making is that in Jesus Christ, no matter what your gender, no matter what your race, God the Father treats you as the eldest son. You get everything. That's the point. Is it misogyny? No, get over it. That's not the point. You see when you're ignorant of the scriptures, you, you run to stupid things. Misogyny. Not hardly. You see the, 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 just the delicious point. I'm going to repeat it here. When we are considered to be sons and having full rights, it means in Christ everybody is treated as the eldest son. You get it all. The entire inheritance. And that's why Paul in Ephesians 1 in that long run on sentence so that in Christ we have been given all the treasures of heaven. Does that make sense? Alright, so that what does it mean for God to be the father for us? Is that he worked all of history for this moment when Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary to die for our salvation. Okay? So now, how is since we're talking about this, now, why is history continuing then? By the way, this is the climax of history. I want you to realize this. This is the climax of universal history. Nothing more important can happen. This is it. So why does history continue? Is it serendipitous now? Is it just accidental? Is there a reason why there's all these things going on in the world? Is it just accidental? No. God is using the history of the world for one reason and one reason only. So that we can be what? Repented and faithed and led in holy living. You can read about this in 2 Peter. Peter says this, that the world, the world continues so that you can be led to and others can be led to repentance. And that's why the Lord has a church to make sure that people are brought into the family and all be treated as elder sons. I hope that's helpful for you. Does that make sense? All right, let's take a couple more minutes here to finish this. Let's go to 1 John 3. <coughs> 1 John chapter 3. So towards the very end of the New Testament, we'll read this passage, make a few comments, and then we'll pray and get out of here. <coughs> 1 John 3.
So if you're at Revelation, you're a little too far. If you're Jude, you're a little too far. Go backwards just a little bit. All right. 1 John chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now notice this language. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called, and here you have it again, children of God. Namely, we're in a family. Pater, patria. Father, family. They go together. And that, that is what we are. We are God's children through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the reason the world does not know us as God's children is that it doesn't know who? God the Father. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and we, what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Jesus appears on the last day, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Here's the point. We are God's children. And the world looks at you and says, no, you're not. Because <laughs> they watch how you talk and they watch how you act. And it's a mixed bag. So if they listen to Kuhlman on a Sunday morning, they might say, yeah, I think he might be a Christian. He might be a child of God. But when they're on the golf course following me or if they're ahead of me, they're saying, is he really a Christian? <laughs> or, for example, I'm, now this is just for fun, just for fun. So when we were following Brandon in the van and I couldn't keep up with him, in fun, I was, come on, man, slow down. So it's a mixed bag. So when the world looks at us, they might, on one occasion, say, well, that person might be a Christian. But generally speaking, the world says, these people are not Christians at all. Because we're a mixed bag. We're saints sinners. And so on the last day, when Jesus judges the living and the dead, all those people who said about Kuhlman, like a district president or district presidents who might say, this guy ain't a Christian at all. By the way, I think some district presidents will not want to go to heaven because, because Jesus is going to let Kuhlman in. <laughs> I think so. I really do. I do. I think one of our former district presidents will, will probably refuse to go to heaven because I'm going to go. In any event. So on the last day, the world will see what truly is, what we have now by faith. Then everybody will see that we truly are God's children. All right. Any questions about some of the wild and woolly stuff we've covered here today? <laughs> okay. So then next week... Apologetics. What did our kids learn at Carbondale? I'm going to just, oh, this is going to be great. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Prayer.